The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm Justin Briley. Today on The Profile, renowned pastor to sceptics in New York City, Tim Keller, joins me and Ruth Jackson to talk about his life, faith and journey with cancer. This was recorded as a live show with unbelievable listeners. Now, if you'd like to join our next live unbelievable show, it's this Tuesday, the 7th of February. I'll be hosting two perspectives on sexuality, gender and identity. And you can be part of that live audience by registering for it at unbelievable.live. It's absolutely free to attend. It's online. Just go to unbelievable.live to be part of it. For now, let's get back to some of the questions that came in for Tim Keller. Just just sticking with the sort of the whole question of how we share our faith in these kinds of circumstances that we've been talking about, cancer and so on. Here's a question from Luke who says, any suggestions, please, for how to comfort non-Christian relatives with cancer, especially if they understandably don't want to really think about cancer or suffering generally, and especially not God? Um, how, how do you, I don't know, have a pastorally sensitive kind of conversation with someone who's in that kind of position, Tim? Well, um, some of them, that's a great question. Um, I will never forget a, there's a, there's a page, I think, in a book by Joe Bailey, B-A-Y-L-Y. He was an, he was an old inner varsity fellowship, um, uh, staff worker here in the United States long ago, like in, I think the fifties, and or maybe 50s 60s something like that and he wrote a book called a view from the hearse because three of his children i think they're all sons three of his seven children died uh you know he outlived them and he was writing a book on on grief uh, the view from the hearse okay Mm. and he tells at one i think a funeral or a wake or something like that he said a a uh a friend came and sat down next to him and said, you know, I know the Lord's working in this and I'm praying for you. And I know that, you know, all things work together for good and we just don't understand his ways and we really have to uh, trust in him and he's compassionate. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so hard, but, you know, we can really trust him. And and Joe, the the author said, I couldn't wait for him to leave. (laughs) And then he said, another friend came by and sat down next to me and never said anything until I said something, and was always supportive, always economical with his words, uh, basically followed my leads, just showed a tremendous amount of support, and I hated to see him go. Mm. But, and I, I've never forgotten that page, and I do think that when it comes to someone that doesn't share your faith, I think the most important thing is for you to just show up. Mm. Uh, for them to see that you really are, um, uh, well, they, they may know that you have don't have the same belief system, and for you to show up and really be supportive and not, frankly, push any kind of faith down their throat, uh, unless they ask questions, mm. or if they th- if they say, "Hey, put in a prayer for me" or something like that mm. with the guy upstairs. Mm. I, not that I believe in him, but I wouldn't <laughs> mind that sort of thing. Then you then yeah. you have an open door, but don't open the door yourself. You need you need to let that person open the door to talking about faith. Otherwise, just be just be incredibly loving and supportive, period. Yeah. Great, great advice. 
again just so many brilliant questions coming in and this is another really practical question and lots of people have sort of said that it's you know they've said that they also want an answer so it feels like it would be a good one to ask you this is from Paul Cowley and he says hi Tim have you ever struggled with anxiety during your treatment and how did you cope with that practically yes it's it's very strange though um there have been Yes. I mean, before the, the the joke about that term, I may mention scanxiety, mm-hmm. which I can tell other people have already mm-hmm. other people who have had uh, cancer know exactly what I'm talking about. There's always some anxiety for some reason. There are times in which uh, the anxiety is worse than others. And I've never really been able to 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 judge why, frankly, sometimes it's just a lot worse. And I think you have to remember you're both a body and a soul. And um, sometimes I, I actually feel like if I'm not um, if I'm not keeping up my exercise, for example, I mean, it can be as simple as that. If I'm not eating the way I should. And I mean, I've, I really need to stay on a regimen to stay to, to, to not gain weight, to not lose weight, to keep my exercise and my stamina up. I find the anxiety gets worse if I'm not exercising. And sometimes exercising is just hard because I'm, I don't have the energy I used to have, but I have to push myself. So to some degree, the anxiety seems to get worse when I'm just not doing all the other things. But ultimately, what, what I have to do is I've just I've got to go to the Psalms. I, I and and don't listen. You know, you British people do not get you know uh, <laughs> a big head. But I take the Book of Common Prayers um, thirty days through the Psalms. You know, it's been broken down. I don't know, Cranmer, I guess, did it, mm. but it's broken down. And you get through it morning and evening. And I, I'll just say this now. Um, I've actually, Justin, you may know, or Ruth may know, I've been doing it on Twitter a little bit mm-hmm. lately, is uh, there is nothing like the Psalms to teach you. And if you're getting through it this fast, that, that if I'm anxious, you're going to have some Psalms about anxiety. There's Psalms where somebody is, is tearing you down and mm-hmm. you've got enemies or Psalms about anxiety, there's Psalms about depression, Psalms about guilt. And if they're coming through, you know, 150 every 30 days, it's uh, there's going to be psalms about anxiety just grab you. Mm. And so the way I deal with the anxieties, I keep my psalms up and I keep my exercise up. And that's yeah. the best I can do. Uh, just to plug as well, um, you've written so many books, Tim. You might have even forgotten you wrote this one, but I, I really found helpful your devotional book, My Rock, My Refuge, which yeah. goes through the psalms um, for the course of a year. Um, just just and when you have to face all of them even the kind of you know quite harsh imprecatory, imprecatory psalms it, it's actually really helpful to kind of just say okay yeah there's a lot of human emotion in these in these psalms and, and it's, yeah it's, it's okay to face that. those psalms those the, you know those psalms are uh sometimes you say my goodness why in the world would god have allowed that to be there you know Derek kidner you know the uh the great british old testament scholar he says the fact that God allows these cries in the scripture shows he understands. And then he says, he knows how we speak when we're desperate. Mm-hmm. So there's that one place, Psalm 137, where it says, uh, blessed is he who does to you what you did to us and dashes the heads of your little ones like on the rocks. Mm-hmm. And you say, yeah. what's that doing in the Bible? Well, Derek Kidner says, isn't that amazing? God understands mm-hmm. that sometimes that's yeah. how we feel. Yeah. And 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 uh, that was so comforting to me. And so I do think 
I usually tell people going through anxiety, discouragement, that sort of thing, immerse yourself in the Psalms because mm-hmm. you'll find ways to process that particular emotion before God. Yeah. I've got a question here from Vestige who has a question about prayer and what do we pray and what about unanswered prayer? So he simply asks Pastor Tim, praying for recovery or healing is obviously not always answered. Uh, that would make some doubt God. So should I always pray for recovery? Or is accepting that life as it comes is also a possible Christian response uh, that I'm simply sort of trusting God? Um, where, where do you fall on this question of, of how we pray, what we should pray when we're facing these kinds of situations? Yes. I, I love the fact that the, the book of Job allows. Um, it, it, you know, at the end of the book of Job, after if you have a if you have a very pietistic approach that says well you never complain to god you never say god why are you doing this or why are you letting this happen um you get you get to the end of the book of job and and god is vindicating job and saying to his friends you know job has pleased me but you don't please me and maybe if job's prays for you i'll i won't smite you <laughs> and we pietistic types we read the book of job and say i I'm surprised that God is not more critical of Job uh, at the very end, because it doesn't seem like Job was very respectful at various places. But I had an Old Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary years ago, Dr. Meredith Klein, who says the thing is, it's true that that uh, Job did very often, you know, shake his fist and complain and grump and cry out and fall down and chew on the rug, but he did it in front of God. Mm-hmm. he didn't walk away he never walked away from god because he was always talking to god about it yeah. and and therefore uh job god actually showed that job beat satan because satan said does job serve god for nothing see in other words job is really in it He's, he doesn't love you for yourself alone the devil said to god in the beginning of job he loves you for what he's getting so if you take away the profit, the profit margin, if it goes away, so it looks like what I'm giving to God is actually, uh, you know, uh, exceeded by what I'm getting from God, then he's going to go away. Mm-hmm. And guess what? If by the end, he never did that, which means God can make human beings into people who actually love him for himself alone. Now, you would never think that that the way he was talking to God, that he was being all that loving. But as long as you don't walk away from God. Mm-hmm. As long as you're complaining and being upset, but you're still talking to him, mm. that's what you that that shows that you love him for your for for himself alone and not just for the good things he's giving you. Mm. So just don't stop praying, and that's yeah. actually a way of saying to God, "I love you for who you are, not just for what you do for me." And but on the other hand, be realistic. Be, be yeah. with the, you don't have to you know you take a look at what Job says. You don't really have to tamp down those feelings. Mm. I mean. What about that prayer that specifically mentioned about prayer for healing? I mean, do you, uh, yes. d- have, you have you kind of had people praying for healing for you too? Yes. And, and how do you kind of, how, how do you square that theologically with the fact that obviously healing doesn't always happen? Well, well, oh, well, I pray, for, by the way, <laughs> I would say <clears throat> at least twice a day, I pray for healing, complete healing, even though my doctor told me there is no cure for pancreatic stage four. Once it's out there, you'll die of it. I've been praying for healing. Mm. Um, God can do it or he doesn't have to do it. I mean, this is, 
years and years of experience with him. When I look back on things that he did for me that at the time I thought were awful, but now I realize were actually good for me. It's just years of experience. I say, look, he knows. I mean, that may sound a little too easy for those of you who are saying, no, 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 I can't die yet. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not young with children still at home. And I think that is really, really tough. On the other hand, when I got this cancer diagnosis, I was 69 years old. I remember Kathy and I looked at each other and said, we thought we'd feel a lot older when we mm-hmm. got to 69. We always mm-hmm. thought we'd feel like, hey, you know, my life's over. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Yeah. So uh, it, it's not like we haven't struggled, but I think in the, the just years of experiences, the Lord, he knoweth. Mm. And uh, I can't possibly be sure he knows. So, I, I mean, ultimately, I'm praying for healing. And just the fact that I, I may not get that is yeah. is something that I have to say, OK, God knows. Mm. Tim, we've had quite a lot of questions about your prayer life. You mentioned earlier that you pray satisfy me every morning with your steadfast love, which is brilliant. And there's a question here from Lisa Harmon, which says, what specifically did you do to change your prayer life? I think that's kind of in relation to the fact that you were saying in some ways you wished that you and Kathy prayed how you do now um, post diagnosis. But is is there something specific, I guess, that changed? And if so, what was that? Well, I I would say that um, this came in two stages. When I was in my 50s, the first time I had cancer, and uh, it was thyroid cancer. I had my thyroid out. And uh, there was a period there where, uh, you know, he maketh me to lie down. (laughs) And he did. And during that time, I actually did have something of a renaissance in how I prayed. That's where I got into the Psalms at a much deeper level where I worked through the Psalms and where I started praying them more often. Um, I also started to uh, do a better job of learning how to meditate. And I'd read that, I'd read that uh, article. Well, it was a letter, you know, uh, Martin Luther wrote a letter to his barber uh, who asked him, Master Luther, how, how should I pray? And he wrote a 40 page letter to him about prayer. But basically in that letter, which you can find online, uh, and you kind of have to get through the first part of it. It's kind of he, he's chatty, but eventually he gets to a place where he talks about a way of meditating um, so that it warms your heart up. And what he does is he would say, uh, choose the idea, then do adoration, confession, supplications. Very interesting where, where you, bef- you, you you don't go from Bible study to prayer. You go from Bible study into meditation to prayer. Now, the difference between meditation and prayer is very simple. Take a look at Psalm 103, okay? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, who's he talking to? He's not, that's not a prayer. He's talking to Mm -hmm. himself. Mm -hmm. And what he's actually doing is he's saying, do you really understand what you, what what this means? Do you, do you see the benefits? You're, you're, you're meditating on them and thinking about them. Uh, John Owen would say, you don't just, you're not just saying, oh, I know that Jesus Christ became a human being. He says, do you see the glory of it? Which he, I think John Owen means, think about the beauty of that. So you're meditating. You're not just, yeah, I read this thing in the Bible. Now I'm meditating on it till your heart is warm, until it begins to affect you. And there's a lot I've written in my book on prayer on that and others. And then you move to prayer. Now that all happened 20 years ago. 
where I, I added meditation and I added the Psalms. And I also added morning and evening rather than only praying in the morning. Those were the three things. But then when what happened was when I got my cancer, I, it, it was a matter of more, you might say, turbocharging. I spent more time doing those things. Mm. So that was the that was the uh, and God obviously was getting me ready with the thyroid cancer for the for the pancreatic cancer. So I wouldn't say the the change now was so much. Um, uh, it was this method as much as just giving it the time and being way, 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 way more um, regular. Yeah. Whereas the uh, the basic methods that I learned about 20 years ago, now I was using in a way that I never really got to, a chance to use them. So that's that's kind of a long answer, but yeah. it's, I hope that's helpful. helpful. Yeah, no, that's great. Helpful. Thank you. I, there's a couple of questions on forgiveness specifically, which mm. obviously we, we referenced earlier on in the show and the, and the new oh, book yeah. uh, to that effect. Um, some kind of personal ones, some theological ones here. Uh, Hannah, for instance, says, how do I forgive when I know I need to, because God has forgiven me of all my sin and calls me to forgive, but I actually just want to walk away from the person and stay angry with them. So this is a really practical kind of yeah, real life sure. question. What, what do you do when you just don't want to forgive someone? Well, on the one hand, I do want to say, uh, and this is this is a little <laughs> on the side of the person, on the side of the part of you that really doesn't like the person. <laughs> I want to say that forgiveness does not mean automatically learning to trust them. In mm-hmm. other words, when I forgive somebody, it doesn't mean I have to trust them immediately. They have to re-earn my trust. And if they don't re-earn my trust, if they don't change then I really don't know that you have to be, uh, you don't, I don't think you have to be as intimate. You can forgive without um, being as intimate as you were before. Some, I think some people say, well, if I forgive, that means I have to go back and do everything. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's never loving to make it easy for somebody to sin against you. Mm-hmm. Think about that. It's not loving to the person. And so if you've got a person who just uh, is very, uh, Oh, intemperate in what they say. I'll give you an example in one second. Uh, that doesn't mean you necessarily have to allow them to to be intemperate in way they, the way they talk to you. So you don't really have to, in order in order to forgive, you don't really have to necessarily trust them. If they don't change, if they don't make those kinds of changes, I don't think you have to do that. However, forgiveness means saying, "I a I'm not going to revenge myself." on the person. And secondly, I'm not going to keep replaying the recordings of what that person did to me. Because that's part of what makes you feel kind of noble. And it almost feels like it's a bit of payback. It's internal payback. And it's um, that's what forgiveness is to say. The mm-hmm. vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Lord, you know what this person deserves. I don't. I don't have the right to try to inflict <clears throat> judgment on them because I'm a sinner. Number two, I don't really know what they deserve because I don't know everything they've gone through. So I don't have the right. I don't have the um, <clears throat> knowledge. And I actually don't have the power to give them what they deserve. So I'm not going to pay pay them back. I'm not going to pay them back directly trying to hurt them. But I'm also not going to try to pay them back by thinking about how awful they are inside. You need to turn your heart away from replaying. I just show you how old I am. I used to say, don't keep replaying those tapes. 
Younger people don't know what tapes are. (laughs) Don't keep replaying the tapes. Don't keep replaying that because that keeps you angry and it keeps you locked in. Mm. So I would say no payback. That's what forgiveness is. I refuse to pay back. I'm not going to try to hurt the person and I'm not going to replay that over and over and over again. And I'm going to let God give the person what they deserve. Meanwhile, my relationship with them, I, I, I need to do as much as I possibly can to no, not ignore them, not stay away from them, not be discourteous to them. But if they don't make any changes, and, and I, 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 I'm sorry, you know what? I can tell you one example. There is a woman who had an abusive father. I mean, an adult woman with an, a father who tended to abuse her verbally. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm going to call you every Tuesday night, dad, because you're my dad. But I want you to know that if you start to abuse me, I'm not going to say, dad, stop it. Or I'm not going to get angry at you. I'm going to hang up. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to call you back next week because I'm not mad at you. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to help you. And also, I, it's not right for you to do that. Yeah. And eventually, it's really interesting. Three or four weeks in a row, he did a normal thing. And she just said, Dad, um, hanging up and then called back. And eventually it changed him. So you, it, see, he, mm-hmm. she was on the, holding him accountable and still forgiving him. Sorry, it's, it's it, no, I, I was going to just follow up with another question that sort of comes, I suppose, on the heels of that. And, and I was going to say as well to, to that person who's asking, how, how do I forgive when I want to forgive? Well, kind of in the way, same way that you said, you know, just being there before God and not walking away, even though you're yeah. angry and whatever. God sees that you're struggling and yes. that, you yeah. know, you don't want to struggle. Yeah. And that is even just the wanting not to feel like this is is a start for grace to, yeah. to potentially come through. Absolutely, um, Justin. Yeah. Yeah. Um totally. T- Terry will also wants so this has a more kind of specifically theological question here, who says, My understanding of the Christian God is that he requires sinners to repent and ask for forgiveness before he will forgive. If that's true, then why should we be expected to forgive regardless of whether or not the offender is repentant, says Terry. Um, I'm not sure if Terry is a Christian himself, yeah. but but um, right. he's, he's got this question. That's a great question. Now, uh, if, I, if I was just going to beat you over the head with a Bible verse, <laughs> it would be Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Now, of course, I'm going to be really nice about it. See, <laughs> But Mark chapter 11, verse 25 says, if you stand, this is Jesus talking. If you stand praying and realize you have anything against anyone, forgive them. So it's a it's a a pretty blanket statement. Yet the questioner is right, because then in Luke 17, it says, if a person repents 70 times, 70 times, you have to forgive them. Well, it seems like a contradiction, except it's not. Hmm. Um, If you want a reconciled relationship, the other person has to repent. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in that sense, you really can't have a reconciled relationship to that person repents. And I actually was alluding to that a minute ago when I said, if that person doesn't make any changes, you don't have to trust them and get back into that relationship. But on the other hand, you, I think you need to do an internal forgiveness where you say, I'm not going to do payback. Then you can go to them and call them to repent. And I can tell you something very interesting. If you don't forgive before you go to them, then you will probably go in order not just to help them, but to basically hurt them. And they'll te- they can tell that the reason you're confronting them is to make them feel as bad as you feel like you he made you feel or she made you feel. Mm-hmm. And therefore, generally speaking, if you don't forgive before you go to try to get that reconciled relationship, you do a lousy job of it. The other mm-hmm. person 
just sees that you're just trying to hurt them and then they get their back up and you never get them to change at all. So, and the, the, but the main difference is that the reason you need to forgive, even though the other person has repented, at least internally, is because you're a sinner and they're a sinner. Whereas when God forgives, God is, God is holy. God is perfect. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the best way to answer that, I think. Brilliant. Thank you, Tim. Just as we're sort of wrapping this up, this feels like a really great question. It's from Matthew. And he says, what do you know after decades of ministry that you wish you knew fresh out of seminary? And his context is that he's about to wrap up his own MDiv and look for a pastorate in his area. And if it's not too presumptuous, I'd love to just add my own question to that, which is, you know, what what do you wish you knew at the beginning of your cancer diagnosis that you've sort of learned in the in the past few years that you kind of wish you could go back and say to yourself? well the first question is a lot easier and than you might think it's um and actually the two answers i'm about to give you are pretty similar though there is no doubt that everybody told me at seminary you got to have a prayer life i just you know look going back i just wish i had seen how important it was i just didn't there's no doubt there is no doubt about it that the prayer life, which is to, the prayer time, uh, was often squeezed out by things I had to get done because mm. people asked me to do this and I never finished it last night. So I get up early in the morning. Mm-hmm. I got to do it before I get into work. And wh- where does it come from? It comes from your prayer time. Mm-hmm. And that is just that's just wrong. And it's very clear that, in other words, what people think of me is more important than what God thinks of me. That their their high regard, oh my goodness, you're getting so much done, is more important than God's regard. When I look back on it, just that very fact that I was constantly letting uh, what people thought about me, uh, you know, overcome and veto my time with God. With God, mm-hmm. that was the main thing. I I knew that would sort of happen, but boy, I didn't realize it. Just took a, a terrible toll on me. I could have been a far better minister if I just said, "No, this is." No, I can't. I'm I'm mm-hmm. sorry if somebody's going to say you, but you promised that it'd be done by the end of the month. And instead, I got up and I I prayed because that was at the, the time. And I I just very seldom did that. Yeah. I just really needed to make sure people were okay. And it's mm-hmm. similar. I'd say my answer is that uh, what I said before, and that is, I wish I'd been able without getting cancer to just know how mortal I am. Mm-hmm. And you know what yeah. Psalm ninety says. Teach us to number our days that we get a heart for wisdom. What does that mean? I know what it means now, mm-hmm. but I don't know how you do that before you really have something like this. I just don't know. There, mm-hmm. there was, there's just a breakthrough in the way in which I look at everything. Once I realized, my goodness, I've been in denial. So I, I guess, I hate to do that, Ruth, to you, but I mean, I basically would answer your question mm-hmm. with reference to what I said before. Uh, I'm not sure there is a way. It's actually, Kathy, Kathy's mother had five children. We only had three. But Kathy, mother, used to say to her, I want to write a book someday, how to raise the first child like the fifth, which meant not so worried, you know, not so upset, you know, really relaxed. And Kathy said, that's impossible, mom. I don't care. There is no way you can possibly raise the first child like the fifth. Never, ever, ever. Because you just have to go through it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're going to have yep. to go through having that first child and being worried about it. Ooh, yeah. Why is she doing that? Why is she? Why is she? 
ooh, you know, just upset. Should I take her to the doctor? And yeah. by the time you get to the third, fourth, fifth child, you realize they're resilient. The same thing. There's no way to get to the where I was, where I am now, I think, uh, 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 without going through the doctor saying, you're going to die from this. Mm-hmm. I wish there had been, but there isn't. And I'm, but I'm glad I'm where I am. Yeah. Well, thank you for being with us tonight, Tim. Um, it's a great place to end it, actually, with that call to put prayer first as we enter a new year. It's often the thing that people try, sometimes fail to do, obviously. <laughs> but but it's been certainly an inspiration for me as well to hear you say that. Um, thank you both to you. Right back at you, as we say here. Thank you for listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. You can catch the podcast anytime uh, over at premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. And do check out Premier Christianity magazine, where this interview with Tim Keller is featured as the cover story in the latest issue. And you can get that issue plus the next two print ones for just £5. Go to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. That link is with today's show if you're listening via podcast. For now, I've been Justin Briley, and there'll be another fascinating guest on the profile next week. For now, thanks for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. My wife and I would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life we had before the cancer. Never. The way you look at your time, the way you look at God, the way you look at your spouse, the way you look at uh, everything just changes Mm -hmm. when you actually realize time is limited and I'm mortal. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to this week's Profile with me, Justin Briley, brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. It's the monthly mag with the best of Christian journalism, interviews, news and features. And today you're going to hear myself and Ruth Jackson in conversation with renowned pastor, author and Christian thinker Tim Keller, who led Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City for over 25 years. We'll be talking about his life and faith, his new book on forgiveness and his recent journey with cancer too. We were joined by unbelievable listeners for this live show and you'll hear their questions. This conversation with Tim Keller is featured as the cover story in Premier Christianity this month and you can get that issue plus the next two print ones for just £5 at premierchristianity.com slash subscribe. That link is with today's show if you're listening via podcast. For now, let's dive in. Welcome, Tim. You've had a bit of a love affair with with the Brits. Um, you you frequently have come over in your time here, Tim. Um, what what's the connection there? Why why as a primarily a US based pastor and speaker and thinker and author have have you connected so much? Do you think with with the UK? Yeah, yes, I I my guess, my wife and I, we believe that probably up until the pandemic happened, we we're there was probably almost a thirty year period in which we came almost at least a couple times a year. Hmm. And the the reasons were very diverse. Uh, in, in the very beginning, it was actually my Presbyterian roots. And I would come and and largely talk to Presbyterian groups. But then what happened was, uh, which, you know, took me to Scotland. <laughs> hmm. More to the, But eventually what it just accumulates, uh, you know, somebody hears you and says, oh, I want you to come back and talk to my group. And it just got accumulated. Also, 
uh, we just also developed not just uh, ministry colleagues, but friends, fr- real friendships. Um, I don't know if, if they're on, but for example, Ray and Joe Lane in Ambleside, which isn't a bad place to have friends. <laughs> I just want you to know Ambleside, <laughs> the Lake District. Uh, exactly. And so we started to take holidays there too. So that's why. Oh, that's that's really nice. Well, look, we've got people joining us from all yeah. over the world, um, not just the US and UK. Ruth, do you want to read out where some of these folks? Yeah, so we've got a couple of people from Sydney, Brooklyn, uh, Sweden, Ontario in Canada, Ontario. That's Definitely right. Not saying that <laughs> right. <laughs> New Ontario. Come on, Ontario. use your nose. Ontario. You don't use your nose when you talk. <laughs> uh, we've got yeah, Tokyo, Japan, Norway, Manila in the Philippines, um, Berlin, Germany, London, Scotland, Netherlands. I mean, it feels like everywhere. It, it's a very international gathering. Jamaica, I've just spotted. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, well, feel free to continue adding where you're where you're watching or listening <laughs> from in the chat. It's it's wonderful to have lots of people joining joining us for tonight's discussion with Tim. Um, Tim, we've we've titled this Walking with God Through Cancer, and because obviously that's, that yeah. has dominated, obviously, your story over the last couple of years. Tell us just firstly, what is the latest with your health and treatment and so on? Well, they uh, put it in a capsule form. Um, I was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer in May of 2020. That, as you all know, that's a very, very deadly kind of cancer. And yet I'm about to celebrate my uh, my third Christmas with my family. Uh, so the reasons for that is I had two years of chemotherapy uh, here in New York City, and it kind of kept the cancer at bay somewhat. And now I'm in an immune immunotherapy drug trial at the National Institute for Health in uh, Bethesda, Maryland. And that is actually working too. So my cancer is still there. Pancreatic cancer can break out any time and take you. And yet it, it, we've been able to keep it somewhat at bay for a pretty long time. And so we're very grateful. Mm. I mean, Tim, this might be really hard for you to define, or it might be something that you've thought about a lot, but what would you say are some of the kind of highs and lows over this past two years, this, this journey that you've been struggling with? Well, Ruth, it, 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 it wouldn't be, um, surprise anyone else with cancer or anyone who has friends or loved ones with cancer um, that you have to constantly have scans you know, in order to you get scans and tests and they happen it depends it, you know, they can happen every month every two months every three months and i have to say that coming right up to those scans we, we have a word called scansiety mm-hmm. uh, because you know that it doesn't matter how good the last one was this one could show that it's out of mm-hmm. control yeah every single time and so you, the, the low lights are every time you're, go- <clears throat> you're going in and you're waiting for the test results. Um, and so, I mean, that's obviously one. And the other is that, that every little ache and pain mm. that you, in the, for most of your life, you say, well, that's probably nothing. And now you say, is that the cancer? Mm. The highlights, and this, this is going to sound like an exaggeration. Uh, my wife and I, would never want to go back to the kind of prayer life and spiritual life we had before the cancer. Never. Wow. wow. Uh, mm. It's uh, there, there's a, there uh, I spent all my life saying that communion with God, the real presence of God, you know, satisfy us this more every morning with your steadfast love, which is definitely a, a request for experience. So what does it mean to satisfy us every morning with our, mm. with your steadfast love? That can't mean, remind me 
It means satisfy me with your love. And I spent all of my career telling people it was available and, and experiencing some of it. But actually, every so often, Kathy and I will say, we have, we're having a much better life now. Wow. Wow. That's, that's quite remarkable. Um, just sticking with the journey you've been on, though, in the last couple of years there, Tim, I remember, I think it possibly the last time I connected with you on the show was to talk about your book, um, Walking with God Through Suffering. Mm. Obviously, that was written in a different time of your life. Is there anything you would revisit now, you know, having spelled out the theory now that you've kind of lived it, lived, lived the, the practice of it? What, 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 was there anything you'd, you'd write differently or think differently now? No. Mm. Now, I, I'll tell you, that's, that, that may, I hope that doesn't sound arrogant. The the fact was that I wrote that, let's see, I guess I was already 60 something and I'd already been in ministry for 35 years. And therefore I walked with an awful lot of suffering people mm. who suffered worse than I did. And so I learned that from the Bible and pastoral experience, not from personal experience, but it turns out, I guess that most of the people I walked with, uh, they, the things that helped them, the things that comforted them, the things that um, uh, you might say worked for them. I mean, obviously, work doesn't mean get rid of the pain mm, or the mm. suffering. It means that you you can endure it mm. and uh, and even grow in it. And those things actually have, yes, they have worked for me, using the term work that way. Mm. I mean, Tim, do you think there's anything that you would say that you've learned in this time that you perhaps didn't know before? I mean, you mentioned walking alongside people and obviously you would have experienced suffering, but I guess nothing to this extent from a personal perspective. Um, well, yes, I already, I already mentioned the fact that um, I really, it's almost like I, when it comes to prayer, I really thought that I, you know, had a good prayer life. <laughs> and when I broke through into another dimension, I realized, my goodness, I was much, much, much less, um, <sighs> Frankly, my prayer life wasn't very good. But the other thing I would say is everyone knows they're going to die. And yet every and everyone knows that they they really, in some ways, um, repress that and and live as if they're never going to die. We all know that we all say that. But it's not so you have not just cancer. I had thyroid cancer. Um, when I was a 52, but the first thing the doctor said is this is very treatable pancreatic cancer. The first time I talked to a doctor, my doctor says, you're going to die of this. It's sooner or later because we don't have a cure for it. And I realized I never really did believe I was going to die at some deep level. I just didn't. And I don't think there's looking back on it. I don't think there's any way to go through the change that happens in you when you know you really are going to die. The way you look at your time, the way you look at God, the way you look at your spouse, the way you look at uh, everything just changes mm -hmm. when you actually realize time is limited and I'm mortal. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I would, frankly, I would have lived a better life if, frankly, in my 40s, I'd been able to do it. Yeah. There is some kind of denial that's there that just will not go away until you actually have a doctor saying you're going to die of this and you could die of this within weeks. It all depends. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, this whole period has, has forced you uh, as a very active person in ministry and so on to 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 step back, um, to put a lot of things on hold. Um, how, how have you coped with 
as it were, being less active um, in, a, in a kind of forced way because of this. Justin, it's been great. <laughs> the, the, the thing I saw, the thing I saw was that I actually was too active. Right. And I'd been too active for too long. And even though I am still less active than I, if I was, didn't have the cancer, I'd probably be a little more active mm-hmm. than now. But uh, it's actually, I'm, I'm closer to where I should have been right. most of my life. I'm very, I, I am very blessed in that God did not make my, uh, my relationships with my sons are good. My my sons are believers. I'm got a great relationship with my wife, and I'm that that is nothing but God's grace because I was too active. And mm. everybody, I felt like everybody said, "You have to do this for me." And mm. okay, I have to do this for you. And um, no, the answer is it's been great to be. <laughs> it's been good for everybody around me and me. Tim, your latest book, as Justin mentioned, is called Forgive. Why I'm, this? I'm holding it up now. There we to go. The there Get a look is. at that. What, why this topic of forgiveness and, and why now um, in the midst of everything you're going through? By the way, Ruth, I could have dedicated it to Justin because the number of times he's asked me to be on this program <laughs> and I've said no. He's clearly a very forgiving person. So he could have been dedicated to him. He came in, he came in third, though, so I... Endless, endless patience with you, Tim. Endless patience. No, no, seriously. (laughs) Well, I, I did sense that that we have a more um, that that we're losing in the West. We're losing our grip on the value of forgiveness. We have more and more people not only showing that they will not forgive, they don't forgive. They're pretty harsh and combative Hmm. in their general demeanor and the way in which they talk to people. Uh, but some just speak right out and say forgiveness is not a good idea. And uh, what I try to say in the book is I there's partly that I understand that because forgiveness in many cases has been abused as when you say to a woman in a church who's been sexually uh, abused and you come to her and you say, well, you know, you have to forgive your perpetrator. He repented. So you need to meet together and he repented. You have to forgive and you can't go to the police. You can't, you, you, you know, so that's an abuse. <laughs> that's, a, that's an abuse. Yeah. But because the reality is that forgiving is not opposed to seeking justice. As a matter of fact, if you don't forgive, you won't seek justice. You'll seek vengeance, which always is going past what justice demands and it always eats you up. So I would say you do need to forgive and pursue justice. It's not either or. But right now in our culture, the the mindset is that forgiveness is the opposite of justice. And since everybody's, especially younger people, are very concerned rightly about justice, forgiveness doesn't seem to fit with that. Yeah. So I thought I'd write a book that just lifted up the biblical material, but tried to apply it to our cultural moment. When it comes to our cultural moment, it feels like I, I know exactly what you mean when you say we're living in a sort of more graceless kind of culture. Um, how, how do we, I don't know, swim against that tide? Because we're all to some extent, I think, being swept up in these culture wars where it's a where it's a very combative, divisive, you know, kind of game. Um, wh- what do you think? What can Christians do to sort of be, I guess, Jesus in, in the culture we're living in? I don't have a. I'm not really going to be able to give you some real great answer, Justin, that everybody's going to say, wow, Tim really, (laughs) no, I think the answer is we have to do it with great difficulty Mm. and tenacity. 
which is to speak the truth in love. If, if you're not clear about what Christians believe, then there's no possibility of persuasion. But if you're not loving in the way in which you speak, there is also no possibility of persuasion. And Paul says, uh, you know, we persuade. And the idea is not to either uh, cozy up to people, you know, uh, and just get them to like you if they have a different opinion, but at the same time, not to not to, mm. uh, to pour out on them and just uh, and bash them. So uh, I think it's very difficult because right now that's just not what's out there. And so I don't have a secret. Mm-hmm. There's no secret sauce. I mean, interestingly, though, your your name came up uh, probably six months or more ago in, in yes. regard to this sort of whole question of how should Christians conduct themselves in the midst of these these questions? Because uh, there was an article written um, which questioned whether we need to move on, essentially, from the <laughs> uh, f- from the winsome style of Tim Keller that maybe was suitable for a kind of what it called um, neutral culture where Christianity, right. while not being reviled, was not particularly praised. It was somewhere in the middle. Now it says, hey, we've moved on to a culture where Christianity is seen in negative terms. And it's and it's almost a bit like you've got to fight fire with fire. You know, you've got to you've got to go in with a more kind of combative, assertive. You can't just say, hey, let's all try and be friends and 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 speak in a winsome manner. So you got I guess, you know, your whole sort of way of of doing things was was being question and challenged yeah. in, in that kind of conversation that was going on in social media at the time. I'm, I'm sure you got wind of that, Tim. <laughs> um, yes. What, what, what's, your, what's your feeling on that whole sort of you know, debate that, that sparked? I'll, I'll say two things pretty brief. Yeah. Because I still think this is a little more of a U.S. issue than mm-hmm. a U.K. issue. And in, in the United States, up until fairly recently, if you lived in big parts of this country, in the, especially in the Southeast or the Midwest, or even lots of the West, at least away from the coasts, um, Christianity was seen either as a positive or as a, a new, in a neutral way. It was either regarded as pos- positively or neutrally. Okay. That was not the case in the Northeast. In New York City, when I got here in 1989, no, no, no. It was much more like it has been in the UK for a very long time, mm-hmm. or Europe, which is Christianity is seen as sort of at least just, you know, we tried that. It didn't really work. I mean, that's, that's the European approach. If we tried that, it doesn't really work. And, and it is negative. I mean, it not necessarily always hostile because British people tend to be a little, just a little more courteous than America, <laughs> but, but it's certainly uh, disdainful. And uh, most of the, an awful lot of uh, Christians in America just did not experience that until fairly mm-hmm. recently. Mm-hmm. And so they say, well, the Tim Keller Winsome approach doesn't work. Well, listen, the Tim Keller approach was forged in New York City. And I'm sorry, from the, it was really, it was never a neutral or positive world. Mm-hmm. So whatever you say about my uh, uh, approach, it's, it, it, you know, it, I was forged in a negative world. The second thing though is, and this is really where it becomes more US than UK. And this is the people who are saying it's time not to be so winsome. These are folks who actually want to change the political world here. They would like the state to be more overtly Christian. Uh, They want Christians to be much more politically active in bringing that about. I think that's a little bit hard for most of us, my British uh, Christian friends to even understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what they therefore don't want, and you can't, you can't be winsome there. You basically have to get political. Yeah. 
And uh, a lot of folks feel like uh, my approach has always been to say, and I will say right now, is whatever we are going to, whatever our political future is, and there is a problem. In fact, it is also true in, in, in Europe, too. That there's a rise of the right, there's the left, uh, there, there's no doubt there's instability, and I don't know the way forward. But I think that there's room for differences of opinion amongst Christians who are united on the gospel. Mm. But mm. they would rather us not me not say that over mm. here. They would rather say, no, the Christian church has to be aligned with a particular political agenda. And that's really their um, motive, I think. And I think it's a little hard. Frankly, I do find it hard because we're very much in touch with people in Africa and yeah. Christians in Africa, China, Europe. And they're trying to say, what what's going on there? Yeah. What in the world? Yeah. And I said, well, you have to understand right now there's a movement among some Christians who say we have to be more politically aligned. Mm. Mm. There's some interesting comments in the comment section as well, sort of, you know, saying what, what it's like in their context. And do please keep those comments coming and do also keep your questions coming because we're going to be throwing to your questions very soon. But before we do that, Tim, over the past year, you've published a series of sort of lengthy essays on um, Gospel in Life, on the decline and renewal of the American church and yeah. sort of presenting its challenges and opportunities. Obviously, you're speaking within a US context, but I'm well aware that you have a pretty good handle on the global church. Um, so what are, what are some of your main fears for the church right now? And, and I guess on the flip side, what gives you hope for the future of the church in the West? Well, I'll give you three of each. Ruth. <laughs> Excellent. Okay? It's not just one a or true two. preacher. Yeah. A true preacher. Yeah, except that they don't all start with the letter P because I'm, <laughs> I'm not Welsh. I'm American. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> the three fears are when people lose their hope that the church can actually thrive in our modern culture when they lose hope there's three things they can go into one is you compromise on doctrine you compromise on historic faith and practice you say we're just going to have to change that because we'll never get accepted so you compromise the second possibility is you you withdraw into high you know high walls around the church and you basically are just going to keep hold of your kids and grow the church biologically like the amish okay and the third is you get very combative and you say, we're going to try to take over the culture and let the Christians run things. And I do fear that all three of those are certainly possibilities in, in the United States. And my guess is different parts of the world would be different. The three hopes are the growth of the global church. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there's no doubt about it that overall Christianity is growing in. And, and by the way, uh, it tends to be shrinking in places where the, uh, as you know, the birth rate is also shrinking. And what that does mean is overall, you looking forward, Christianity is not going away in any way at all. Uh, it's growing and it will continue to grow. Uh, the second hope I have is that Jesus actually said the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my church. You know, and there's no, like I like to say, there's no uh, expiration date on that offer. And then lastly, I actually think secularism looks exhausted, but I'm not going to, that's my, I don't, it doesn't look to me like it's really confidently saying we really have all the answers Mm. uh, to all the basic human problems. So you put all that together. I got a lot of hope, but I still have a lot of fear. Yeah. 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 The the church is not perfect, but it's it's often a lot better than secular humanism (laughs) in terms of the answers. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, Well, look, so much i wish we could continue talking about but we must go to some questions um from 
our audience sure. tonight. I'll, d- I'll dive in with the first question. There's so, so many brilliant questions. I'm really honest, heartfelt questions. So thank you so much for sharing mm. so honestly. This is from Joseph and he says, I'm a primary caregiver for my mother who has stage four skin cancer. And she's definitely had those lows that you spoke of. When she has those lows, what do you think is the most helpful thing for me to do to push her closer to Jesus? As we both know that the end is very likely near. Well, um, here's what I like to do, and it's it's almost a trick, uh, and that is to say, uh, I want to pray for you. Now, you say mom, dad, whoever. You say, I'd like to pray for you, but tell me, uh, in what I want to go to God right now and pray for you, but is there anything in particular you'd like me to be praying for? Anything in particular? What that does is, first of all, make sure if you you have time. Because very often, if you say you're, if if you're actually saying, "Can I pray for you before we leave?" Uh, th- that you know that means I, I got you got to go. But if you actually say, "How can I pray for you? In what way?" Then very often you'll have a five, ten, fifteen minute conversation where the person pours something out that's really bothering him or her. That is is great. That for just to have you listen in a non judgmental way. And say, of course you feel that way. Absolutely you would feel that way. And so if you're able to simply just non-judgmentally be there and then pray to God, which takes a little bit of, uh, you know, that's the reason I read the Psalms. You know, what you have in the Psalms is every single possible situation processed in prayer, every single human possible situation. Uh, but uh, so the more you read the Psalms, the more you'll know how to pray. But basically, that's what I would do is I would say, can I pray? And you know what? It doesn't really matter what what the person's faith or beliefs are. I, I've never seen that be turned down. That's one possibility. It's just that's just one idea. Thank you. I mean, we've got lots of very practical, personal kind yeah. of questions here, uh, pastoral questions, really. And we should say, as, as often say on my other podcast with N.T. Wright, when these pastoral questions come in, do seek wise counsel from someone not on a screen from, from yeah. a real life pastor yeah. but but um amanda in san diego firstly says pastor tim i'm a new christian truly enjoy your sermons listen to them frequently i am fighting stage four colon cancer as a single mum with two kids it is quite a roller coaster as i basically live from scan to scan and treatment to treatment yeah. truly appreciate your prayers and guidance as i navigate this new way of living with cancer Amanda doesn't have a question, but but actually, I, I just wanted to acknowledge that and and say thank you, Amanda. But there is a question from someone else who's kind of on the other side of this. Um, someone who says, I've been caring for my mum who has terminal cancer and has had for several years, and I'm struggling to keep going, mm-hmm. caring for her, also serving in ministry. The Lord has been so good and gracious, but it's hard to be still in his presence, given all the demands pulling on me. Do you have any guidance on balancing care for others with maintaining our first love relationship in Christ in this season of my life. This experience has exposed the depths of my own sin and selfishness. So I'm often overwhelmed by shame and my own inadequacy. Mm. Sorry, Tim, carry carry on. Oh, okay. Thank you. I'm sorry. Didn't that was very important to hear. And I I almost interrupted Uh, on the one hand, I would say I should bring my wife in here because you're asking (laughs) a question of her. On the other hand, interestingly enough, 20 years ago, my wife, uh, has Crohn's disease, but she had it in a in a way that we was very debilitating twenty years ago, and where I was the caregiver. In fact, it's one of the one of the strange things is we always thought that I was going to outlive my wife, and actually we've had to spend a lot of time 
readjusting our idea that it's very possible that she'd outlive me. And that actually has been very difficult for us both because we've, we've just gotten into the groove of that. But as a caregiver, I do remember, and she would tell me this, she would say, it doesn't help me if you get yourself to the place where you are just utterly burned out. It just does not help me in the long run. And therefore, she said, please don't make unnecessary sacrifices. In fact, that, that's her term. I'll just lay this on you. An unnecessary sacrifice is one that makes you feel good in the short run. I did that. And yet it actually, it, it's, you're, you're, you're eating into your principle. Now, you know the difference between, a, you know, in other words, uh, it's like in an endowment, they, you don't want to give so much away every year that you eat into the principle. So eventually you're out. Yeah, yeah. The, the endowment has to produce, uh, it, it produces because it, it's invested and it produces and you give away what the uh, the profit is from the investment, but you don't get into the principle. Mm-hmm. And she would say unnecessary sacrifices make you feel virtuous. And partly, frankly, when you're when you're a caretaker, you feel a little guilty that you're better than the other person. Mm-hmm. I do remember that. But I felt kind of guilty that I wasn't in pain. I wasn't hurting. I could just get up and go. And it was almost a way to, to over, over sacrifice and over almost burn myself out was almost a way of my saying, I'm with you in all this. And that she would come back and say, this isn't going to help me if you utterly burn out and you get to the place where you don't have any energy. And so at certain points, it's just just create a boundary. So that you don't need it in your principles so that you can be with me for as long as you need to be. I hope that helps. That's what I remember from being a caregiver, even though I'm not one right now. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. helpful. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And there's a great question here from Raj, which I think echoes probably my questions and lots of people's questions about, you know, how could you possibly believe that God exists in the middle of everything you're going through? And, you know, when you don't see him necessarily at work in your life. And so what Raj says is, Pastor Tim, could you please relate a time in your life when you did see God's power manifest so clearly that no other explanation is plausible? Mm. No. Now I'll tell you why. Mm. I would say that I actually do not doubt the existence of God because the evidences I've seen are cumulatively overwhelming. But I think what the questioner is asking is, did you have a particular instance, you know, some event mm-hmm. that all by itself was enough to say, now I know there, there has to be a God? No. And I, I'm not sure I would know. Now, partly because I'm a, this is one of the reasons why I think British people like me a little more <laughs> than, than a lot of Americans, is I'm, I tend to be, I'm I'm a skeptical person. I tend to be skeptical. I'm just not, um, you know, I and therefore, because I tend to be skeptical, I can't imagine one thing that would happen that would make me say, well, there can't be any doubt because you, you can always doubt. But mm-hmm. cumulatively over the years, both intellectually and personally and socially, I've seen people change. I've experienced people that I don't believe are capable of what they, the great things that they are capable of without God. I've thought these things out. I mean, Justin is, in some ways, Justin, your whole program there is all about why Christianity actually does make sense. And the alternatives make less sense. That's one of the reasons I'm a Christian, is that the alternatives, I don't have all the answers, but the alternatives have even fewer. 
Yeah. And you put if you put the intellectual and the social and the experiential, and right now the 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 reality of God that I'm experiencing in my prayer life, all together, I'm just over the top in sure certainty. But I can't give you one. And I'm not okay. sure. I'm not sure you there is one, but that's because maybe I'm a Tim Keller skeptic. You're listening to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio, brought to you in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm Justin Briley, and my conversation, along with Ruth Jackson with Tim Keller, continues after a short break. <laughs> 